together on this first um, Sunday of the year 2017. Dear Father in heaven, we want to bless your name. We want to thank you that we indeed are overcomers. We know that from John's epistles as well as the apocalypse of St. John the Divine. We also thank you that we are victors out of 1 Corinthians 15. You lead us into triumph at 2 Corinthians 2, and we are therefore on the winning team. As we approach the Word of God today, one of Paul's grand and theological epistles, we would want to thank you for committing yourself to written revelation in order that we might grow and profit from it. We do not worship the Bible by any means, but we do put our faith in it because it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonders and glories of salvation, as well as the duties and the responsibilities that are incumbent upon us because we belong to Christ. So once again, as we on this Communion Sunday approach the Word of God, might we do it with a spirit of expectancy, realizing that the Holy Spirit himself does teach us divine truth, and therefore we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The movie that put Steven Spielberg on the map, of course, was Jaws. Jaws. Now, Joyce and I were raised, she from birth, me from age 17, at a church which you could probably use the word legalistic attached to it. It did have a holiness code. You could not go to dances. You could not play cards. You could not drink. And uh, you could not go to movies. You could watch Christian films, but not Hollywood movies. Big distinction. But anyway, uh, Joyce, being a good Baptist, was a college grad before she saw her first movie in a theater, and the first movie she ever saw was Jaws. She went with her teenage brother, and because this was her first experience at a theater, she grabbed his knee and thigh so many times... Her brother left with bruises and a Charlie horse. But that tension, that tension between animal and human, this this huge, huge shark, and all these people that just want to have a vacation on the beach, that tension, of course, was throughout the entire movie. The irony, though, is the name of the city where the beach was was Amity, Amity, which is the Latin word, not the Greek or the Hebrew, but the Latin word for friend or friendship or peaceful or mutual goodwill. You hear from Hollywood, it's an amicable divorce as the Hollywood stars. We just want you to know, respect our privacy. We're still best friends and we'll love us each other forever, but we're getting divorced. Uh, That doesn't really sound too kosher to me, but... That's how the word is used, an amicable divorce from the Latin amity, which means to be a friend or to have friendship or to have peace. Not so much here in America, but across the pond, amity was once a very common woman's first name, as was here in the States, charity. You don't hear that much anymore, but it is a valid name, as is the word amity as a woman's first name. So if we were looking at the Latin Bible, we would not have like Jehovah peace or the Lord our peace. It would say Jehovah amity, the Lord our peace. God is our friend. But throughout the word of God, both covenants, old and new, the fat one at the beginning and the skinny one at the end, you know, the two parts of our Bible, the words harmony and amity or more common unity and peace 
are oftentimes woven together. So this morning on this Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of 53 in this year, we're going to be talking about harmony and amity. That is, we're going to be talking about unity and peace. And probably a verse that puts them together well would be Psalm 133, verse 1. A lot of you have memorized that verse, even though you might not know where it is. How pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. And that's Psalm 133, verse number 1. The idea of peace comes from the Hebrew word that you also know, shalom, a peace, a wellness, a soundness, a completeness, a health. And in the Greek text, it's pronounced eirene. You don't have to know that. But from that word eirene comes the woman's name Irene. Something is irenic. It's very peaceful and calm and soothing. So that's where we're going to be today. I'm not going to talk about the Latin and the Hebrew and the Greek. I'm going to stick with English because that's where we're going as we see these traits, these pieces of a pie that we need to have from God in order to have peace. Now, I'm going to call these things spiritual truths, biblical veracities. The world calls them personality traits, personality traits. And they are, but because we are born again, we depend on the Holy Spirit of God. We depend on the resurrection power of God to take these half a dozen truths that are revealed at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, and we want to make them part of our lives. Again, as I share the word of God with you, they'll all rhyme, so they might be easy to remember. But the point is simply this. We don't want to go through life with a wonderful personality. We want to go through life being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, as Ephesians chapter 5 states. So as we look at the first half dozen verses of Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we're going to be breaking it into two parts. First, the traits needed for harmony and amity, that is the traits needed for unity and peace. Followed secondly, the Trinity is needed. The Trinity is needed for harmony and amity. That is, the Trinity is needed for unity and peace. So that's the two parts. They're very, very clearly set one next to the other in Ephesians chapter 4. So let's begin with the word of God before us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 1. The traits needed for harmony and amity. That is, the traits needed for unity and peace. There are six of them at verses 2 and 3, but we have to get through verse number 1 first. And here the Bible reads at Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's a great verse. It's a mouthful, but it's a great verse. And it basically begins with the word therefore because it's predicated on the first three chapters of Ephesians, which are three of the greatest chapters Paul ever wrote. And Ephesians chapter 3 ends with that glorious benediction, now unto him that is able to do it exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power that works in us. That's the benediction I'm talking about, which is just the previous verse. Therefore, based on that kind of God, therefore, based on the Trinitarian work of salvation in the Ephesian epistle, 
Paul says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. And Paul's the kind of guy you would want to have as your pastor, but you don't like his resume because he was basically in jail a bunch of times. He was in jail in Philippi. He was in jail in Caesarea. He probably was in jail in Ephesus. He was in jail twice in Rome. So the guy's a loser, five times in the slammer. But again, that is through the sovereignty of God, not any sinful action that he committed. But he is a prisoner of the Lord. Ephesians is one of the four prison epistles. And he's imploring and he's entreating. And what he does is he takes the noun for the Holy Spirit, turns it into a verb, and the best we can do in English is entreat or implore, but again, behind it is the Holy Spirit, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So God is expecting us, knowing sound theology of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, to walk or behave or live our life, or have all waking hours in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The walk is very, very common in the New Testament. There's over 30 ways that you can walk. You can walk in him, you can walk in light, you can walk in truth, you can walk in his commandments. There's about 30 of those, both positive and negative. And here Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This idea of walking worthy has the idea in the language of the New Testament to have equal weight, that is to have a balance. But what Paul is basically saying is, I want doctrine and duty. I want creed and conduct. I want belief and behavior. I want orthodoxy and orthopraxy to be balanced perfectly in your life. That's tough to do, but that's what God wants from you because you have been called by God with a holy calling. Now, in the Gospels, the call of God is normally what we call non-efficacious. Many are called, you were chosen. But when you get into the 21 epistles, especially Paul's 13, when he talks about the call of God on your life, He's talking serious business. It is extremely serious to God how you live your daily life. And here he says, I want you to walk worthy to the calling with which you have been called. I remember years and years ago, and I am not a follower of royalty by any means, but I know what one of Queen Elizabeth's sons was going out with a showgirl by the name of Koo Stark. Now, if you are old, you remember that name. She was Pooh Stark. And ay ay ay, a man who's in line to be the king of England is going out with this loose woman? He is not walking according to his calling. You just don't do that in England. You don't do that anywhere. But that's the illustration. We have to be very, very serious about this walk, this behavior, this countenance that we have. And then Paul says at verses 2 and 3, I want to explain exactly what I mean by walking in a worthy manner. Because Paul will take six traits. The world calls them personality traits. 
I'm calling them biblical and spiritual truths. And God wants to see all six of these in our lives, fighting each other to make sure that they stay in our lives and not ooze into the world as worldliness and carnality and fleshliness. So we're going to be looking at these six traits that are found at verses 2 and 3. We'll go through them quite quickly because a lot of them are synonyms. But when you get the list of six, you know exactly about the walk that Paul mentioned at verse number one. So the first on our list of six, the first on our list of six would be the word humility. Humility. Verse two begins with all humility, not a personality trait, a divine truth that is incumbent upon us who believe. Paul simply makes up a word. He takes the word lowly and he takes the word think and he combines them together and makes a noun. So to be humble means that you think lowly of yourself. That is, you have a self-knowledge that you are unworthy and you are a creature, and you have a God-knowledge that means that he is the potter and you are the clay and not the other way around. In my small group, I tell people about prayer It's not man's will getting done in heaven that counts. It's God's will on earth getting done. That's what counts. And that's the idea here with all humility, with a lowly way to think that that, that God is in control, not we ourselves. He is the potter. We are the clay. I sort of like to make up the word prideless. Prideless. You don't see that in any dictionary, but I I just made it up because I like it. Prideless would be a good synonym for humility. Satan, uh, theologians debate, was the first sin pride or unbelief? Maybe you didn't know that. Theologians debate, what was the first of the original sin? Was it pride or was it unbelief? But here we have pride seen by way of contrast, that is, we are to be Humble, we have humility, not pride. That is, we are to be prideless. So don't be like Satan, full of pride with overestimation of oneself. But let us have humility. Let us think lowly of ourselves, realizing that we are unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God, except for the redemption in Christ. Then you better take advantage of the invitation to go to the throne of grace. Number one, humility. Number two, sensitivity. Number two on our list of six, sensitivity. And the next word is gentleness. Gentleness. It has the idea of meekness. And in the language of the New Testament, it has the idea of living in between, not being too angry, and not having any righteous indignation at all. In other words, when you go bowling... They used to be called gutters. Now they're called channels. You don't want to throw a ball in the gutter. You want to throw the ball in the channel. And what God does, he looks at us as children bowling. And he puts these inflatable tubes in the gutters so that when a child throws the ball and it's heading for the gutter, it'll hit that obstacle. And that child might get a strike when he should have deserved a zero. And dear friend, to have sensitivity, to have gentleness, 
You don't want to be a bull in a china shop. You want to be angry at the right time, and you never want to be angry at the wrong time. You want to be able to control your passions. You do not want to offend one another, and by all means, you do not want to offend God. As this word is used in the secular world of the first century, it was used of a soothing medicine. It was used of a soft wind. It was used of a broken colt. And, and the idea is so beautiful. You have a soothing and, and soft countenance about you. If so, you have a sensitivity. If so, you have a gentleness that is pleasing to Almighty God. Humility, sensitivity. Number three on our list of six, stability. Stability. The next two words, with patience. With patience. Your version might read, with long-suffering, the same truth, whether patience or long-suffering, each word will work well. But the idea here is we have stability. We never give up because we will be rewarded at the end, and we never give in because we know that's not the way God would have us to live as losers and quitters rather than overcomers and victors. We will never admit defeat because that would mean the world, the flesh, and the devil would win. We don't go there. And we will never be broken by disappointment or discouragement or suffering. Stability. In my pastoral prayer of a few minutes ago, I quoted Colossians chapter 2, where we are rooted and grounded in the faith. We are rooted like a cedar of Lebanon, We are grounded like a pyramid on the sands of Egypt. You are not going to budge a pyramid. And you can kick a cedar of Lebanon all you want. It's not going anywhere. That's the idea. We are stable people. In Ephesians 4, when others are blown by every wind of doctrine, we're not that way at all. That's why we look at every cultist in the eye and say, you're wrong. Because we know whom we have believed. And we have confidence in the word of God. And it's never let us down. We have stability. We have stability. Uh, It's a great Christian virtue. It has the idea of uh, maybe having someone in the crosshairs. But you decide not to pull the trigger. It's maybe uh, enduring a wrong rather than inflicting a wrong because you are stable. He who laughs last laughs best. And there are so many ways to interpret that, but all of them good, by the way. Uh, But that's the idea. God will have the final word. He will vindicate your patience, your long-suffering Sermonically, your stability, humility, sensitivity, stability. Now, number four on our list of six, number four on our list of six would be the word leniency, leniency, which reads showing uh, tolerance or forbearance to one another in love. That's leniency to show and to demonstrate forbearance and tolerance uh, to one another. 
Do you watch all those judge shows in the afternoon on television? The people there beg for leniency. Leniency. Cut me some slack. Give me a break. And God says, you know what? We can be that way. Forbearance. Tolerance. One of my favorite verses is out of my favorite epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It's also from the Old Testament. And you've, you've memorized the verse. You just don't know where it is. It's 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. In the Greek text, it says, love builds a roof over a multitude of sins. Do you have the Christian countenance to have leniency to build a roof of love over people who might sin against you or who might not agree with you? We're not asking you to compromise truth. We would never ask you to do that. But when push comes to shove, does building a roof over a multitude of sin, does that even strike a responsive chord in your soul? It should, because it's biblical. Uh, I have a friend who has a very, very low pain threshold. If I took a, a little cotton ball and bounced it off his nose, he'd start crying. When I had my deviated septum surgery, and Joyce, we weren't even dating that we were in high school. She came to visit me as a candy striper because we were at the same church. I was so impressed I married her. But I remember the doctor, he left in some cotton, so now I have a perforated septum, not a deviated septum. And he took this, this needle that looked like a fish hook, and he pushed it on one side of my nostril into the other side, and he pulled it out, and he took the strands, and he went like this. Because he had to make a knot. I have a high pain threshold. My friend Glenn, low pain threshold. Spiritually speaking, how's love function in your life? Do you build a roof over sin? Or do you make it a magnifying glass so you can share it with others? It's not a personality trait. It's a biblical one. Biblical leniency without compromising veracity and truth. Humility, sensitivity, stability, leniency. Now number five on our list, number five would be the word unity. Unity. Verse number three begins, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. There it is, unity, that begins verse number three. <laughs> the word, actually the verse begins, being diligent means to be hasty to accomplish, to present yourself with zeal and effort. It's in the New English Bible, to spare no effort. It's to have a resolute determination to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in every single chapter in the book of Ephesians. It's a very, very Trinitarian epistle. But I'm just guessing, I'm just guessing that St. Paul remembered what Jesus taught him during those three years in Arabia when when. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. And then he had over a three-year period, he was discipled by Jesus Christ 
Now, now that's a discipleship course, ladies and gentlemen. But in that, I'm sure our Lord mentioned his upper room prayer at John chapter 17. And Paul remembered that and stuck it into Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 3. But, but let me, to refresh your memory, let me share with you a few verses out of John 17 with uh, this idea of harmony and amity, this idea of unity and peace. Uh, John 17, 11 says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 21, that they all may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be one in us. Powerful. Verse 22, and the glory which you have given to me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. So unity, harmony, peace, unity, very, very biblical, very, very pneumatological. That is dealing with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Unity is very, very important. And then number six, to end our list, number six would be, in the last words of verse number three, tranquility, tranquility in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace, that would be tranquility. Maybe the Carnival Cruise Line has a big ship named Tranquility. Or maybe if you like astronaut stuff, Tranquility Base, the eagle has landed. You know, when they first landed on the moon, But the idea of tranquility, you hear that word, and I'm using it sermonically here at the end of verse number three, in the bond of peace. Now, this word bond um, isn't so much bond as in handcuffs. It's bond as in the King James girdle or belt. That is, we are in the bond of peace. We have a belt that keeps our toga up from our ankles like in Ephesians chapter 6 with the armor of God. The reason you need a belt is because if you're running in a toga, it's easy to trip. So you jack it up about a foot, and you tighten your belt, or you tighten your King James girdle, and then you can proceed without being impeded. And that's the idea here. In the bond of peace, peace is, is a belt. It's Velcro. It's a ratcheting mechanism that keeps humility, sensitivity, stability, leniency, and unity all together. That's how God wants us to live. Wow. You mean I can take these six words into the year 2017 and ask God to make me a better believer if I understand biblical humility and sensitivity and stability and leniency and unity and tranquility? Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. But you're going to say, Greg, thou art full of new wine. That's way beyond me. That is impossible. That's why we have the next three verses, the next three verses. And we just looked at the traits needed for harmony and amity. Now, secondly and lastly, the Trinity is needed for harmony and amity. That is, if you do it through the energy of the flesh or your wonderful personality, or your sign in the Zodiac, you will fail by month's end. You'll probably fail by next week, but for sure by month's end. But 
at verses 4, 5, and 6, God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father all want to illustrate illustrate this unity and this harmony and this peace. And that's why at verses 4, 5, and 6, we have a very, very clear illustration of the Holy Trinity that wants to work in your life to make these six spiritual traits a reality, not a cute sermon outline. So at letter, or pardon me, at verse number four, let's start with God the Spirit wants unity and peace. Verse number four, there is one body and one spirit, that is one Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So this idea of one, 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 three times the word one occurs at verse number four. And isn't that one symbolic of unity? And the Spirit says to us, you know, there is one body. The Colossian epistle emphasizes the head. The Ephesian epistle emphasizes the body. We're in Ephesians. This is body life. We have one body where Jew and Gentiles are together in Christ. There is one spirit, one Holy Spirit. He is a person. He is eternal. He's part of the Trinity. He's not a force like gravity. He's not an influence like sunlight. He is a person. He is the Holy Spirit of God. And then at the end of verse number four, there's one hope of our calling. How many times have you heard me say, we are cut out of the same bolt of cloth We are on the same team, and we're all going to the same place. That, my friend, is the one hope of your calling. Wow, we, God the Holy Spirit, wants unity and peace. He's put me in one body with one head. He's not leaving me, and we're all on the same team heading in the same direction. Then secondly, secondly, God the Son wants unity and peace. God the Son wants unity and peace. That's verse number five. A simple verse, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I wonder what the key word of verse number five is. One, one, one. Verse four, one, one, one. Six times the word one occurs. Does that sound like unity and peace? Well, it does to me. But to go to the text of verse number five, one Lord. And this is not, of course, Caesar or Augustus or any emperor. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at Philippians 2.13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved at Romans 10.12. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, you cannot call Jesus, quote, Lord, unquote, unless it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. So the Holy Spirit allows us to call Jesus Lord. So we have one Lord, that is the second person and member of the Trinity. One faith, this is either one faith, that is one creed, that is the the orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith that we will never compromise, or it could be one faith in the Lord, that is we're all born again, Trinitarian ways uh, through the Spirit of God. So whether it's one faith, that is, these are the doctrines we believe, or one Lord in which we believe and have faith in to give us salvation, both are true. And then there's one baptism. Is this Holy Spirit baptism? 
like 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Or is it believers' water baptism that we all identify as being part of a local assembly as well as a body of Christ by being buried with him in baptism? The theologians debate, I sort of opt to that one, uh, that is believers' water baptism versus spirit baptism. But uh, if you believe the other way, you are 100% true because of the book of Galatians at chapter 3, verse 27, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. But I'm keeping all the spirit at verse number 5. I'm keeping all of Jesus at verse number 4, all of Jesus at verse number 5. And now lastly, to conclude, God the Father wants unity and peace. God the Father wants unity and peace. Verse 4 was the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, the Son of God. Now verse number 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But verse 6 begins with the word one. That's the seventh time the word one occurs in these three verses. But then the also, the other key word, of course, is the word all. But we'll take them as it comes. Uh, one God and Father. One God and Father. We call this theologically patriology, the doctrine of God the Father. It's an unbelievably fascinating study. And we have a God and Father who is our God and Father. Uh, remember, Jesus said, I will ascend to your Father and to my Father, to my God and, and your God. He was saying two things. There's a distinction. You are not I as deity and fleshed, but we do have the same God. And how powerful and wonderful is that? The Abba-Father relationship is the same between Jesus and you as a believer in a sense that I can give you Bible verses where both Jesus and you are to call God Abba-Father. That's wonderful. One God and Father who, first of all, is of all. That is, he is the all-in-all God who is over all, that is, he controls everything. He is through all, that is, he sustains everything. And he is in all, that is, he wants to control even your very, very life. So we have God controlled, God sustained, God filled. And verse number six says, one God does all of these wonderful, wonderful things. Humility, sensibility, stability, leniency, unity and tranquility, God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father says, yes, it can be a spiritual reality. Don't do it in the energy of the flesh. Do it with a Trinitarian God that wants to make you the kind of men and women that will be well-pleasing in his sight, blessing other people, and glorifying God. And I can't think of a, a better paragraph of Scripture to have a communion service and start a new year then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, let us pray, and then the brethren will come forward to distribute the communion elements. Dear Father, thank you for the wonder, beauty, and grace of divine revelation. Thank you for the wonder, beauty, and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich so that he's able to make all grace abound toward us, so we always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. That's why we bless you and praise you, and that's why we break bread together, because Jesus Christ is Lord, and we say that to the glory of God the Father. Amen.